Today, or I should say this whole month, is the Foster Care Appreciation Awareness uh, Month, and Britain has done a ton to uh, bring all of that to light here at Refuge, not just this year, but for many years now, and I feel like now it's on almost all of our radars, which is awesome. Um, I head up a ministry called Gathered Goods, and I've talked about it a little bit before, and I've done a couple um, drop-offs so far, bassinets, kind of stuff like that, but I'm giving my first box today, and I'm so excited, so I just wanted to show you guys. Um, these were all donations that I got, and, and there's actually going to be two boxes. I just brought one up here to show you. Um, so this is what it looks like when we give it to the foster families, and it kind of looks like something that you would get in the mail, you know, from that you bought online, and it's all packaged nicely, and I want that to kind of be part of it, is that they get excited about people that are excited about their foster um, children. I know it's hard to be a foster parent. I can only imagine. I can only imagine it's even harder to be a foster child, and so to have um, something that comes looking like this, and you feel appreciated and excited to do that, um, and I'm not saying that you know, donations handed over in a Target bag is not good enough, that everything is absolutely good enough, but I wanted to have that special feeling um, of being able to unwrap something and know that we are just excited about these children as they are, um, and that we are alongside them and celebrating them in this journey. Um, if you have any like new clothes right now, I'm just collecting donations for like um, zero to two, and some of them are pretty tiny, so preemie, all the way up to like 3T, 4T clothes. Um, I am collecting those and sorting them. We're actually going to have a gathered goods work night on um, June 14th after women's group. So women's group kind of ends around 8.30, 8.45. So if you're not there, um, you can't be there for the group. You can still come. I don't exactly know where. It's probably going to be here at Refuge, uh, which would be the easiest thing. But uh, you could talk to me more about that. And we're just probably going to be sorting, folding, that kind of thing. I'm going to have all the clothes washed and ready for us to do that. And that'll be a great time to get involved with um, this. And I know that all of us are involved in so many ministries. It's such, you know, it's a smaller church, so we have so much on our plates, and I just hope that this is something, one, that if you are done having kids and you want to get rid of clothes, I hope it will take a burden off of you to be able to give them to me, and then also it's kind of an, an easy thing to get involved with, um, with those little work nights and stuff like that. So uh, that is Gathered Goods, and thank you guys already for participating with me in that and for helping and celebrating these foster families. And then if we could all stand for the reading of God's word. All right, so we have two scriptures uh, today. The first is Genesis 15, 6 through 15. It said, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I possess it. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know 
for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a, in a good old age. In Romans 10, 9-11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. I will take a second to do this. Just indulge me. Oh, that wasn't it. Um, Hi, Mom. I'll call you later. I'm busy. That was it. I am actually really excited to preach this uh, message this morning. Um, I was very thankful um, for last week, John did a great job introducing uh, this new series, and um, yeah, there's, there's a few reasons I'm, I'm really excited, not just for today, but just for the, the whole series, just, just in general, but I'm excited to walk together, all of us, as a body, through a lot of these really pivotal and foundational truths and, and doctrines. We don't often get a chance to do that so specifically. Secondly, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to walking together through all these truths and doing it as a way to unify all of us as a body so we can ratify in our hearts together these understandings. And I'm also excited because it includes the children, right? As we're going through the, the catechism, I know that they're going to be doing the same thing. It's a, it's a really cool thing. And I think, uh, lastly, I'm, I'm really excited that that as we recite and repeat these different statements every week together, um, that we'll be able to do so with a, with a deeper meaning. Um, we understand these things intentionally, you know, so we can live them out together and hold each other accountable for these things that we hold together. And I pray that the Lord would bring our hearts together in a, in a supernatural conviction that we have together. Um, join me in, in prayer. I just feel like we should, should pray again as we uh, open God's word. Lord, come before you as, as human beings, weak and feeble. Lord, we don't possess all knowledge can only experience time one moment at a time. We can't fix the past and we don't know the future. We are very finite. So Lord, as we come before you, we, Lord, we confess our, our difficulty in belief. Lord, we pray that you would quicken our hearts or that we might take you at your word and we would believe you. Lord, as we discuss just the, the concept of, of belief, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, Lord, that we might be able to 
spend that time with you on the inside and that our souls might wrestle with the concepts that we will discuss today and that we might be able to encourage each other. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I wanted to start out by reading in Romans. It was one of our passages that Savannah was nice enough to read for us this morning. In Romans chapter 10, I want to look at verses 9 through 11. These verses um, John looked at last week, and, and I'm really glad that he did. Um, we were talking before, it's very difficult to talk about a creedal type of faith and talk through these verses and not just naturally start talking about belief and believing. And so um, I just wanted to go back to this, to this passage and uh, let's read it together. Or I'll read, you don't have to read it out loud. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 11, for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That quotation there, that that verse 11 is a quotation from Isaiah. The nuance given in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 28, 16. Um, The nuance there. It doesn't just say won't be put to shame, but it gives this idea of you won't be panicked. And I, and I like that. I like that, that idea. I wanted to make sure we carried that, that forward. This idea of not panicking is one of these benefits of proper belief. Now, this passage here in Romans, the conversation here is... Uh, uh, satirical, it's, it's discussing salvation. That's a pretty important thing. So as we look at this and, it, and we talk about believing, um, it's, it's a pretty, uh, pretty pivotal concept and idea. And as we look at the, at the creed, as we recited it today, those statements are belief statements. That's the structure. It starts out with, I believe, and then, and goes through. Each one of these statements is meant to be a way for us to recite, to, to state out loud with our mouth the things that we believe. So if we look at this verse, it talks about two different things going on. There's a belief in, in our heart, but there's also a confession. If we confess that Jesus is Lord, there is something about saying it out loud rather than keep it Inside, And it's not to say that a belief inside of our heart is somehow um, pushed down or is unimportant or doesn't carry a weight, but there's something about the belief inside and the confession that brings your whole being into this, this idea. And very much so, this idea of belief is more than just an intellectual belief or it's more than just a, I want something to be true, more of a hopeful feeling. This idea of belief, as we would talk about, according to the context of a, of a Christian experience, those of us who are following Jesus, this is important. It's, it's, it's one of those things that allows us 
to live out our faith, this belief, this belief in our heart, the confession that allows us to, to exemplify those things. This is all important in our understanding of what it means to say, I believe, and in our context, we're talking about so many of the statements in the creed. Uh, it's probably a good idea to understand what in the word we're talking about when we say, I believe in something. We can understand that. In 2021, that's the year that we are in right now, the statement I believe in can sometimes be met with odd looks, depending. Depending on what we're talking about, if we start to talk about that we have a belief, I believe something, uh, there, are, there are some that would look at that as archaic. We don't, why, why do you believe something? In some circles, they would see that as lacking something. You're missing something. You just believe something. And there's other circles where they would take this idea of belief, and if you, if you kind of bust out the, the walls, you knock off the roof, you've got this open belief, this wide open belief that's oftentimes looked at and identified as some sort of an elusive virtue. If you can somehow have a, this openness to believe, openness to believe anything, this, this big idea, something bigger than yourself, this is somehow a virtue, and, and honestly, sometimes when people discuss it, they'd say, well, I wish I had that virtue, but I don't. Maybe they don't say the I don't, but it's, it's implied. And for some people, the statement, I want to believe, I want to believe, may hold a meaning for some of you, even if it is just a poster with a UFO on it. Right, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody? That, and I bring that up because a lot of times just the idea of belief is all thrown in that category now. It's pushed off into things that you believe it because you can't prove it, so we shove it all in one, one area, one category, and so you can go over to that category and you can kind of, like a buffet, pick the things that you want to believe and then you can, there you go. There's your, your belief system. You get to go in there and you get to pick all those other things. And so this, this idea of hoping for something bigger, oftentimes that, that's a desire by some folks who, who say like that's an archaic idea, but then at the same time there's this desire to want to hope for something bigger, for something more. There has to be something more, whatever that might be. You know, the idea, this, this, this concept of, of belief, I just believe something. Like I said, it might be for some this, this archaic idea because what they would see is if you have something concrete, if you have something you can prove, or they would throw it into this category of if because there's science, That somehow that, that, that understanding of belief is, is changed or tainted in, in, some, in some manner. And for some of those folks, they, they, they wish they could. I, I really wish that I could. It's this elusive virtue, as I said before. However, belief that's drawn upon conviction is for a lot of people this 21st century sort of advanced human philosophical kryptonite. If you, if you bring that in, if you are somehow believing because of conviction, somehow that's going to weaken you. That's going to 
either weaken the individual or weaken your argument. Somehow we've out, we're out of the realm of the definitively concrete, provable, and we're now in a realm of fantasy, if you want to put it that way. Belief generally, this is, I'm making some conjecture. We can have some good conversations afterward, but to try to encapsulate into a few different ideas, so I'm generalizing. For some, belief, just that concept, I believe, is, is equal to holding to something that has no evidence. You have no evidence for that thing. So therefore, when you say that you, you want, that you want to believe, you believe that and your belief system is based on, on nothing. No evidence. Fantasy. Some people say it's ignorance. Or you have some sort of odd Peter Pan syndrome where you just don't want to grow up. You just want to believe that those things are there, but there is no evidence at all. So some people, when you say belief, they'll think you're talking about that. Then you know some that will see that or think that if you state, I believe or I hold a belief, they think that you are holding a belief in the face of contradicting evidence. There's all this evidence that they would, they would point to to say this goes against your belief. And so then your belief in, in stating it that way is foolishness. And depending on the conversation, the topic, who you're talking to, who's holding the belief, they would say it's not just foolishness, it's dangerous. To believe in something, to hold a belief that is against what they would regard as evidence. So sometimes when you bring up this idea that I believe, and whatever you state, in it, state that way, they bring that baggage. Right? So they'll, they'll, bring, they'll bring this over, and, and I think some of this, some of these concepts, um, they hang around, There's, they are what, I'd, what I would call the deception of intellectual secularism, or a different way to say it is the Enlightenment hangover. And so we have these, these kind of sets of belief where if something's not concrete, if I can't point to it, if I can't, if I can't weigh it, it's, it's not real. Thomas Jefferson is really famous for this. He's kind of known for this thing, right? He took the Bible, and he had a pair of scissors there. And he cut out the parts that he thought were too supernatural, the parts that were too difficult for him, he would say it was too difficult for him to believe. He simply could not believe it because of his intellectual mind. And I think to a certain extent, what this shows is a deception of, the, of secularism. This sort of enlightenment idea that if you can't weigh it, touch it, measure it, either mean materialism, or if the mind of humans can't sit and come up with that idea, find the beginning and the end of the idea, that somehow then it's not true. And in fact, they would say it cannot be true. And generally, you can just call this materialistic secularism. And for a lot of people, this idea of the secularism, you know, came from the Enlightenment, but from that time until now, what's been taking place is this systematically sort of dismantling of some of these overarching concepts that we would put into that category of, I believe. 
obviously I'm talking mostly about Western thought and society. If you go out to the whole wide world, it gets a little complex. And for a lot of people, this idea of I want to weigh it, I want to measure it, I want to think through it. If I can't get to the end of it, I'm going to jettison it. This idea that they'll take that and they, they push spiritual truths, things that we would say are, are non-material truths, and they get pushed off to the sides, they get pushed off to the fringes. You can still talk about them, but don't bring them into the middle. Don't bring them into some area where there's some sort of importance where we're going to build something on top of that. Those things stay off to the sides. We're going to keep in the middle here where we're all talking about this stuff, something that's concrete, something that we can all agree upon. What ends up happening is if you, if you actually look at what is being sanitized out of secular culture, generally it will be, surprise, surprise, a lot of Christian ideas. Spiritual neutrality is now the expectation for a lot of people. And I think for, in a lot of areas, in a lot of arenas, they've succeeded, the nebulous they. They've succeeded. I think there's a, for a lot of people, that, that idea, that concept of belief has now been removed or has never developed to the point where there's a void. There's a void. If uh, my kids watch The Donut Man, everybody watch The Donut Man? There's a hole in your heart. It's a Jesus-shaped hole. No one? All right. No problem. It's all right. Um, what this has done for a lot of people is there's a void there. There's something missing. And since the category of belief, we're talking about it here in a second, that would be based on conviction, evidence, has been pushed out to the sides, what's left? What's left to fill the void? For a lot of people, it is that I want to believe UFO poster, something. Something starts to fill that void. Or some other spiritual practice. Or it's some other spiritual discipline. It's something else, but not something that's built on a conviction based on documented evidence, based on experience, which we'll talk about in a second. Oftentimes what that translates to is pretty much you can put anything in that void except for biblical Christianity, and that would be acceptable. Have you observed that? Anyone else? Anything else can go there. Um, National Geographic did a, a study, a poll, and they found that 77% of people who were polled, they believed that human beings had been visited by aliens. I bring up aliens because, and UFOs, because it's something that's not inside this system, it's something external, it's something that's not, you, you can't measure it, you can't equate it, you can't do those things. It, it, so then it, it does become a beyond natural set of details, right? So that would be supernatural, 
So for a lot of people, that, that starts to become their answer for supernatural, is to start to put some of those things in Or I'm, I, I would venture to say, many of you have conversations with people where you know people where maybe it's not aliens, maybe it's ghosts, maybe it's mediums, maybe it's tarot, maybe it's other new age beliefs, maybe it's yoga, maybe it's whatever. Fill in the blank, put it in the void, and somehow that, that sits there. In this particular poll, they said 77, 77% of people believed that, the human, that human beings have been visited by aliens. 68% of people polled believe that Jesus is the Son of God or is God. 68. So, if you want to equate, which is also funny because those numbers don't work, that would mean that there are people who believe both of those things, right? Which means there's a, a mixing in there of belief. Now, some of you are the eternal optimist. And so you hear that number and go, 68%? Why, that sounds pretty good. 68%? Look at that. It's the massive majority. Well, sad to say, the Barna Group did another poll, this time specifically of evangelical Christians, people that identify as evangelical Christians. What they found, and there's a, a lot of different findings, a pretty extensive study. They found that 48% of people who self-identify as evangelical Christian believe that good people or performing good works can gain you eternal life. 44% of people don't believe that history is the unfolding plan of God. 43% of people, this one threw me, 43% of people believe that Jesus sinned while on earth. I just did not expect that. 42% of evangelical Christians seek moral guidance outside of the Bible. And for, this is another one that I, I, I don't understand, but 40% of people who identify as evangelical Christians are acceptable, or they accept lying as being morally acceptable if it advances your interests or protects your reputation. What? So we, we've, got, we've got a problem. We, we, we have a lot of people who identify as Christians and yet you could ask the question almost like I brought it up because it's part of this topic. What do they really believe? What are they doing? For a lot of people who identify as followers of Jesus, Christianity to them, or their belief, their religion, whatever they would get, put the label on it, has become nothing more than moralistic therapeutic deism. It is weak. A belief system like that cannot stand up to the problems, the issues of this world. It just can't. It will be crushed. It cannot stand up. Refuge, this is important. It is important that we know what we believe 
and why we believe it. Once that's determined, it is our mission to then share that conviction, to share that truth with others. That is what we're supposed to do. If you want to encapsulate it, there you go. For many in the world, they can't find anything truly satisfying in their own hearts. That void will remain. Nothing will really work. Nothing will really fill it. They'll continue to try to find things that will and just won't. And so for them, they may continue on in a belief based on nothing, that gives them nothing, that basically becomes a holding pattern until they actually meet their creator. But they want to believe. They want belief. I think most people do. I have a poem to share. I didn't write it, so you can feel better about that. This poem was discovered. Uh, it was discovered on the wall of a concentration camp in Cologne. And it was written by an unknown Jewish occupant of that barrack. So for just, just a moment, I want you to put yourself into that situation historically concentration camp, all the experiences, crowded, dirty conditions, threatening conditions, to put it in the most mild way possible. And yet written on the wall is this poem. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love, even when there's no one there. I believe in God, even when he is silent. I think what the world wants is that kind of belief. A belief that will stand up to the pressures of life, whether common or extreme. Something that will will hold. Brothers and sisters, we we don't have a belief that is in spite of no evidence or because evidence is contrary. We don't hold to something because it's expected of us or because, well, my parents did and my grandparents did. That's not the type of belief that we are supposed to have. Our faith is not a blind faith. Our belief is based on three general things. Documented evidence. Experience, 
both personal and shared, and out of relationship. I couldn't think of a third E. So, evidence, experience, and relationship. Our belief is drawn specifically out of Scripture and is corroborated by witnesses. That's our belief system. We could, honestly, you, you could spend hours and hours going through a lot of evidence, spend hours going through manuscripts, through different apologists throughout history. We just don't have time for that today. But the belief that we hold to is, is actually not dissimilar from, from others. Belief is part of the human experience. When someone knows and understands something to be true, they don't test it again every day. How many of you retested gravity before you sat in your chair? Not many of us would. And yet I'm sure we all have the experience of sitting in a chair and it breaking. Or tipping over or something. And yet we still have a certain level of faith. We, we have to. And that's based on experience. That's based on maybe someone telling you. Right? So you, uh, how many of you have more than one child? Mom's out there. You know, more than one child. Okay. How many of you have one kid where you tell them, don't touch the stove because it's hot? And they go, I believe you. I believe. And you got another kid who says, are you? Are you sure? When was the last time you tried? And so they try. How many of you only have the second category of child? They always say that, or at least I always say, that a smart person learns from their mistakes, but a wise person learns from someone else's. So maybe you have a third category of child that gets the second category of child to go try something so they can confirm. <laughs> Another way to confirm belief. But belief is, is actually part of the human experience. It really is. Everyone does. Even for someone who says, I, I do not believe in anything. <laughs> Ta-da! See, I couldn't even say it without, I don't believe in anything that's, that's, that's this, which, you know, which, which is supernatural, or something can't see, touch, or taste, or measure. And yet... They, they would then tell you, you could say, well, what do you believe? And they would tell you. We all believe something. It's just whether that belief is based on something that will stand up to scrutiny or stand up to the test of time. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, we, we actually get this story, get the account of Abram interacting with God. There's, there's three different times where God restates the covenant that he's making with them. So this is the second time. <clears throat> Starting in verse six. He believed the Lord, that's Abram. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. We could pause there. There you go. It was counted to him as righteousness. His, his salvation was based on him believing God. He believed what Yahweh told him, and Yahweh counted it to Abram as 
righteousness. Very next verse. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldees, and I give you this land to possess. He then tells him the thing that Abram believes. Right? So now we've got this. But look at verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? But how am I really going to know? What's interesting is it says that he believed. But then he said, how am I going to know? Are those two different things? Are they related? Are they connected? And then right after that, it says that God was angry and smote him. No, it doesn't. You're like, I don't, I don't remember that part. What does he do? He says, okay, I'm going to cut a covenant. And we, won't, we don't have to go through all of these, but God basically demonstrates through what would have been recognized as a, a manner of putting together a ratified contract. They would take these animals, they'd cut them in half, and then the two parties would walk between them, basically saying, if, if we don't hold up to this bargain, then let someone be able to walk between the two halves of ourselves. Right? Except Abram saw in a vision that it was the Lord alone who walked through. And so really, the Abrahamic covenant is God covenanting with himself concerning Abram, that he will accomplish these things. And that was enough for Abram to say, all right, we're in. So, so what you have in this, this passage here, in this construct, you have belief. Abram believed. He believed what God said. But he wanted God to show it, to guarantee it. He wanted proof, if you want to put it that way. And God went ahead and gave it to him. Here you go. Here's some proof. So again, God wasn't offended. It doesn't seem that the Lord provided Abram with with the proof um, that he really asked for as far as giving him a vision of the future, but he was able to give him enough to say, hey, you you can trust me. If you could trust another human being with a contract like that, you can trust me, right? God gave him what he needed for his belief, in effect, to get feet. The belief was then substantiated. For the rest of Abram's life, he sees God fulfill the promises that he made. Provision, protection. Even when Abram doesn't really do everything he's supposed to do, God still does it. So then, you have Isaac. When Isaac asks Abram, who really is Yahweh? Abram can say to Isaac, hey, this is Yahweh. This is who he is. Isaac's faith is built upon the experiences and the faith, the belief that Abram has. And so Abraham becomes someone who testifies of that faith. So remember, documented evidence, experience, both personal or shared experience, and out of relationship. You can say that that kind of hits all of those. Isaac then shares that with his children. What What's amazing then is then Isaac, Jacob, they all have continued experiences with the Lord to where God really does show these things. And so for generations afterward, God points back, hey, remember 
Remember your ancestors when I did all those things? That's me. I did that. It's based on something. It's based on a truth that really did take place. And I think this is honestly the difference between dogma and doctrine. If you look it up, depending on the dictionary, they'll equate the two, but I think there's a subtle difference between the two, between doctrine and and dogma. Um, So dogma is an untested, generally, I'm generalizing again, generally an untested, unquestioned belief. I have that, I was taught that, I, I, I just believe that. Doctrine, we'd say the way that we would use doctrine, doctrine is something that's taught, it's evidenced, it's displayed. That is a, 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 a Christian idea of doctrine. So we believe a set of beliefs, but we're not called to blind faith. And and sometimes we equate a blind faith with greater virtue from great or greater uh, merit from God. Somehow, because you believed without evidence, that you will have more than they did. That is seen as a much higher virtue. And there's elements to the idea that someone with, you know, we get this in the New Testament, where we believe the testimony of the apostles. We didn't get to see it, but we believe that. So it's a little bit different. The doctrine is a specific body of principles that's taught, and in this context, we'd say it's taught in in the context of community in the assembly that we have here, and we draw the principles out of Scripture that we might live according to that truth. I, I would say this for all of us, and then we'll, we'll move on a little bit here, but it's the duty of every generation of Jesus' followers to re-examine the deeply held beliefs and doctrines of the previous generation and to rediscover the basis and the truth of those beliefs in order that we might live them in a new, fresh, resolute manner. We don't just take what was given to us from a previous generation. We re-examine. We look at it. Let's look at Isaiah real quick. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now. This is the Lord talking to Isaiah. Come now. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins were like scarlet... They shall be white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But look at that first there. Come, let's reason together. Let's, let's evaluate these things. The belief that we have in the Lord is based on that evaluation. If we have beliefs that we never re-examine, we're in danger. We're in danger of falling into a dogmatic type of belief untested dogma will eventually be questioned to the point where it may fall apart. One last passage to look at today. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14.
Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Or hollow. It's empty. If, if the resur- Paul's saying here, if the resurrection isn't true, if there is no resurrection, we have no faith. Paul was a eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. He spent time with witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. He said, this is true. This really happened. This really took place. I really saw him. And so when he talks to others, he says, this is the eyewitness testimony. And for people to say to Paul, that's not true, he says, it is. It's absolutely true. And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that there is resurrection, your faith is nothing. So another way to state that, if the belief system that you hold isn't actually built on something that happened, something that is measurable, that was witnessed, something that can be Um, discovered through documented proof or from experience in some way through relationship, what faith do we have? That's the kind of faith where we can say, I know, I know that this thing is true. It has stood up to scrutiny. So then when it is pushed or questioned or shoved over to the sides, relegated to the edges, we can say, I know that that's true. I believe. I don't believe because there's no evidence. I believe because there is evidence. For the things that we're going to walk through in the creed and look at, it's one of the things that we wanted to do. When we speak that on a Sunday morning, we don't want them to be empty words, devoid of, of any kind of evidence or documentation or, or what, what, where are we getting this from. So as we walk through these different topics, We want that to be something that we then can point back to to say, I now understand why we say this. So you can confidently say that, or when you do say those words, they will have that deeper meaning. You will be able to hold on to it to say, yes, I do believe these things. And there are people for for centuries who were called to the floor, who who are pressured to say, what is it that you believe? And they've stated these same things. There was a a crisis that took place in the early church. Crisis was, there were people who were professing followers of Jesus who were asked if they believed and they said yes, if they say, if you renounce Christ, then we won't torture you. If you renounce Christ, you can go free. But if you hold to your belief, you will be killed. And so there was a choice. Do I confess with my mouth that which I believe in my heart? Or do I get out of this mess, but still hold on to my beliefs so that later... I can just pick them back up again. For the ones who would not deny Christ, they really did meet torture and death. For those who confessed, 
I'm sorry, um, the right word is apostatize. If they, if they actually denied Christ, they could go free. And some of that wasn't, I deny everything about Jesus. Sometimes that came down to, you can believe Jesus, we don't care, but you also need to worship Caesar. So bow to this image of Caesar and you can go. So some of them did. And they went home. So now you have a crisis here. Because some of those folks wanted to rejoin the community to say, whew, got out of that one, guys. I got a story to tell. Meanwhile, there's families there who lost loved ones because they didn't. And so now you're rejoining this group. What do you do at that point? And there were churches who said, you know what? You had a chance to confess Jesus and you didn't. And so we don't really want you here anymore. We don't really know what you believe. We just don't know. And it's too dangerous to keep you here. They pushed them out. And one of the groups was the Donatists. The Donatists actually lasted pretty long as far as the scale of church history because they, they recognized that a belief that's only believed on the inside and not stated, not confessed, and not lived out, is that really a faith? That takes us back to James. Without works, is your faith even real? I don't know if we will ever be in the situation where we're asked that question, but my hope is, if any of us are ever in that situation, we can very clearly and plainly speak with conviction those beliefs from the Apostles' Creed to just state it. Maybe we couldn't articulate it any other way, but we can state it. And we know what we're saying, and we can hold it with conviction. And I pray that for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that there are many challenges to our faith. Belief, Lord, is difficult. God, I pray that we as your servants would be convicted to know the things we believe and why we believe them. Lord, we confess that we may have taken your truths and thought them too weak to stand up to scrutiny, thought them too old-fashioned to be brought up in common conversation that we would have today, God. We confess that, Lord, we repent of it. Lord, I pray that we would see our beliefs, what we believe in, that we would understand them and we would, Lord, see those as a way to state to the world, to the enemy, to that cloud of witnesses, Lord, that we know what we believe and we hold it with conviction. Lord, I pray that we would encourage each other to that end. Lord, I pray that we would never stop learning about you. Lord, I pray that we would always Lord, take our beliefs, our faith with us where we go, that we might be able to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord with conviction. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.